Welcome to Reading Between the Lines, the People's Friends story podcast in association with the Odd Fellows. Each episode, a few of us from the Friend team, along with some special guests, will delve into our archives to find a story to read, and then we'll all sit down for a wee chat about it. Make yourself a cup of tea, pull up a chair, and come join us. This week, we'll be reading A Deal in Hearts, which was first published in The People's Friend in August 1913. This story will be read for us by Marion from The People's Friend Features Team. Over to Marion. There's your month's salary, my boy, and you can go off for your holiday, said Mr Benjamin Parker, stockbroker, to his nephew. And I don't mind saying I've been pleased with you lately. Stick to it and there's no knowing but I might take you into partnership some day. Harry Graham flushed with pleasure. That's awfully good of you, Uncle. Well, I don't make any promise. That's conditional upon your working hard and behaving yourself. But I mean to take things easier myself soon and may have other matters at home ties to occupy my attention. In fact, Harry, I'm thinking of getting married. Married, Uncle? My congratulations. But I've heard nothing of this. No, nor nobody else, though it's practically settled. Mr Parker smoothed down his well-filled waistcoat and smiled complacently. That is, I fixed upon the lady and secured her, her relative's approval of the match. The lady of my choice is not wealthy, but she's handsome, young, Young, exclaimed Harry Graham unguardedly. Yes, why not? Mr Parker's complacency was slightly disturbed. I'm not so very old myself, though I'm stout and getting bald. I'm in the prime of life yet. But remember, this is on the strict QT until our engagement is announced. Well, goodbye, my boy. And by the way, I'm taking a few days off at the coast myself. There's nothing doing at present and Saunders can take charge meantime. Ta-ta! Harry Graham withdrew, eager to catch the one o'clock from Central, and it was only as he sped down Renfield Street, Glasgow, bag in hand, that he recollected neither had thought of asking where the other meant to spend his holiday. As Harry Graham strode down Weems Bay Pier to the Rothsey boat, his eye was caught by a trim and dainty figure, clad in navy blue, with a coquettish little hat pinned upon golden hair, which gleamed in the glorious sunshine. Beneath one arm was tucked a parasol, and under the other she carried an enormously fat, long-bodied and short-legged poodle with a ridiculous blue ribbon tied about its neck. The animal was struggling and squirming in evident desire to escape, calling forth rebuke and tiny admonitory slaps from its bearer. Pampered brute, I expect, reflected Harry. wonder why women will spoil their pets and decorate them in that absurd manner. Beauty and the beast, I fancy if she's as charming as she looks as from behind. As the boat swung out across the firth and Harry Graham strolled around the deck, he espied the golden-haired girl on a sheltered seat, and his first interested glance at the pretty face lit with long-lashed blue eyes resolved all doubts as to her attractiveness. The fat, refractory poodle had been deposited by her side, and the girl had opened out her people's friend and was already absorbed in its contents. Left thus unguarded, the animal seized its chance to flop down from the seat and waddle off across the deck on its own pursuits. And Harry Graham, leaning over a rail nearby, 
was startled by ejaculations of annoyance and distress from the golden-haired girl as she sprang up in dismay. For Mr Poodle had now wandered up onto the puddle-box and was blinking down at the creaming surf, rolling about unsteadily and with every probability of being pitched into the water. Oh, gasped the girl, he'll be drowned. Oh, what shall I do? Harry Graham sprang promptly to the rescue. In a moment, he was on the paddle-box, grasping at the adventurous poodle. But, drawn back from danger, the animal wriggled itself free, leapt down and darted off along the crowded deck. "'I'll catch him for you, miss, don't worry!' exclaimed Harry, his spirit roused, and set off in swift pursuit. But the wonderful agility of that short-limbed quadruped proved more than he'd bargained for. Dodging and twisting between the feet of the amused onlookers, the poodle fled to the stern and from thence to the bow, escaping Harry's repeated and frantic clutches as if it quite enjoyed the sport and was resolved in sheer perversity to bulk the young man's efforts. At last, however, it unwarily scampered below and was cornered in the saloon. Resisting the temptation to vent his exasperation upon the poodle's overfed carcass, Harry Graham sought the deck and restored his captive to the eager arms of the girl. "'Oh, naughty Peter!' she exclaimed, and looked up, blushing delightfully into the young man's eyes. "'It was awfully good of you, I'm sure, to take such trouble.' "'It was nothing, I assure you,' said Harry gallantly. "'You see, he's not my dog. He belongs to my aunt. I'm only following her down to Rossi with him, and aunt would have been frantic if anything had happened to Peter.' She thanked the young man again, and Harry reluctantly raised his hat and moved away, blessing Peter for affording excusive speech with such a divinity. And as he watched her leave the steamer at Rothsey, with a poodle in firm custody, he sighed sentimentally. That's the sort of girl I should like to marry, he murmured, as he made his way from the pier. I wonder if I shall see her again. Strolling towards Craigmore on the very next afternoon, Harry Graham overtook the golden-haired girl of his dreams, clad in white now, and again accompanied by the poodle. Peter was on a leash, but evidently did not relish the restraint and had so contrived to twist the leather about his guardian's slim ankles that Harry felt justified in advancing to her assistance. Still in trouble with Peter, I see, he said, as the girl smilingly recognised him and he stooped to extricate the beast. My aunt's resting this afternoon and has asked me to take Peter out for a walk and he simply won't be led. Why, he's quite good with you, for Harry Graham had retained the leash and Peter was trotting along docilely now. "'May I lead him along a little way with you?' ventured Harry eagerly, and though the girl hesitated for a moment with beleaguered colour, she assented. Secretly overjoyed, Harry Graham fell into step beside her, determined to make full use of this golden opportunity, and so absorbing grew their conversation that his companion only realised with a start how far they had walked and declared that she must return to her aunt at once. Peter continued on his best behaviour. Though we're staying at the Hydro, we're not really well off, the girl confessed. Indeed, we're so far from it that Aunt is constantly impressing upon me that I must make a wealthy match. Marry somebody for his money. Her pretty cheeks were pink, and her voice sounded rebellious. Horrid, isn't it? It is, agreed Harry Graham warmly. But you won't, will you? Not if I can help it. He's very rich, and he's got round my aunt. But he's fat, and quite elderly, and I couldn't bear him as a husband. I don't want to marry at all. Don't you? imposed Harry quickly. Never? Her eyes wavered before his ardent gaze and were cast down demurely. Well, not him at any rate. 
but he won't leave me alone, and now he's at the hydro too. I quite believe Aunt invited him to follow us there that he might worry me into consent. It's a shame, cried Harry, hotly indignant. Don't you allow yourself to be bullied. And if this old humbug persists, I'd advise you to lead him such a dance that he'll throw up the sponge in despair. The girl laughed out merrily. A very good idea, she began, but stopped with a gasp. Oh, here's Aunt herself coming, and Mr Parker with her. I'll have to introduce you, and I don't even know your name. Harry Graham had neither time nor presence of mind to inform her, for they were already face to face with the approaching couple, and in a whirl of confusion he recognised his uncle escorting a middle-aged lady as stout and rubicund as himself. "'You, Harry, and with Miss Darlow,' cried Mr Benjamin Parker, while his companion eyed her niece suspiciously. "'Molly, where have you been so long? Who is this with my darling Peter?' "'He's my nephew, Harry Graham,' exclaimed Mr Parker. "'But I wasn't aware you knew Miss Darlow, Harry.' "'Um, yes,' stammered the young man, hastily relinquishing Peter's leash. "'Fancy you being in Rotsey too, Uncle.' "'I'm at the Hydro, my boy. Where are you staying?' returned the stockbroker. And Harry mumbled a reply, lifted his hat and escaped hurriedly, glad to get away and to be alone to face the awful truth. His Uncle Benjamin was the rich, fat and welcome suitor he'd been hearing of, and Molly Darlow was the girl Mr Parker had confidently settled upon as his future wife. Harry groaned aloud as he strode blindly along the esplanade. He himself was already desperately in love with Molly Darlow, but to act as rival to Uncle Benjamin was to ruin his prospects and forfeit all chance of the promised partnership. Yet to abandon all thoughts of the golden-haired girl with now was impossible, and after all, Molly had declared that she would never marry Mr Parker. But at any rate... Cost what it might, he must play the game meantime and keep out of their way. Mr Parker, I want you to take me rowing, announced Molly. Mr Benjamin Parker, comfortably ensconced in a veranda chair, almost dropped a cigar in his dismay. Rowing? he ejaculated. But I can't row, and it's too warm. Nonsense, you can learn, and the exercise will do you good. Come along, I'm going for my hat. Mr Parker roused himself stiffly with a discontented sigh. Confound it, he grumbled under his breath. Two days ago she trailed me to the top of Barone Hill and I haven't got over it yet. Yesterday she insisted on my golfing with her. I broke two borrowed clubs, spoiled yards of turf, and my arms feel as if they'd been disjointed. And now, rowing in this heat! He gazed disconsolately at Molly's aunt, dozing placidly nearby with Peter on her lap and reluctantly moved off to join his fair tormentor. Harry Graham, flitting about in the bay in a spanking little hired lug sail, flung over the helm and steered to cross the surge from an incoming steamer. Just then, his attention was attracted by a cry from a rowing boat rear. Its occupants had lost an oar, which was being frantically fished for with the other, by a stout and heated gentleman, whilst the girl in the boat urged him wildly to haste, for their boat was broadside onto the approaching surge. Recognising the pair, Harry Graham shifted his helm again and bore down to the rescue. And not a moment too soon. The surge caught the rowing boat on the other side from which Mr Parker leaned, tilted it over and threw him into the water. But as Harry swept past with a mighty effort, he caught Molly Dollar around the waist and hauled her safe and dry into his craft. Then, Tacking swiftly and skilfully, he was able to grasp Mr Parker's collar and drag him, spluttering and gasping, aboard also. 
The rescued man sat, the picture of disgust and misery, and very silent, as Harry steered for the landing stage. When it was reached, Mr Parker stood up, the water still streaming from him, and grimly addressed his nephew. Harry, he said, I'll come along tonight and thank you properly. Meanwhile, I'll take a cab back to the hydro. And with only a stiff bow to Molly Darlow, he jumped off, and the girl's pretty face crimsoned and twitched with uncontrollable mirth as she gazed after him. You mustn't blame me, Mr Graham, she choked out. He's your uncle, I know, but after all, it's your fault. I'm leading him the dance that you advised. Harry, said Mr Parker that evening, having duly expressed gratitude for his rescue, I'm in a deuce of a fix. Indeed, uncle, said his nephew. Can I be of any service? I'm afraid not. You see, it's a delicate matter, a question of honour. As no doubt you've guessed, Miss Darlow is the young lady I'd fixed upon as my future wife. But I'm afraid I've made a mistake. Why, uncle, isn't she all that any man could desire? She's more, my boy. In fact, she's altogether too much for me. I can't be so young as I fancied after all. Molly's too lively, too strenuous, too full of energy and high spirits. I'm for a quiet, peaceful life, not marriage with a cyclone. Oh, uncle. Now there's her aunt, a placid, restful woman, just my style. If I hadn't been a fool, I'd have proposed to her. But now I've gone and asked her consent to a match with her niece. I'm in an awful hole and can't see how to get out of it. Harry Graham drew a quick breath and leaned forward to the dejected stockbroker. Uncle, he said persuasively, I... I think I can suggest a way out. Suppose I marry Miss Darlow instead of you. The truth is, I'm in love with Molly myself, but I couldn't be your rival. If I win and marry her now, there'll be no harm done. She'll still be in the family, so to speak. Then you could marry her aunt, and if you'd give me that partnership, we'd all be happy and jolly together. Mr Parker rose excitedly to his feet and wrung his nephew's hands. Splendid, he cried. My honour saved and my mind relieved. Come along to the hydro, my boy, and begin your courtship at once. I only hope they'll both behave like sensible women and accept the change of partners. And before the holiday at Rothsay was over, they had... Reading Between the Lines is proud to be sponsored by Friendship Society The Oddfellows. We recently asked some members of The Oddfellows to call in and let us know what qualities they look for in a friend, and we're delighted to be able to share some of their answers. Hello, I'm Paula from Norfolk. The best thing about joining Oddfellows is all the laughs we've had, even through life's ups and downs, and all the friends I've made. My name is Judith Lawson. And I come from Brighton. I like being a member of the Oddfellows because it's about being in an organisation that cares about people. Heather Marshall, Bradford. The best thing about being an Oddfellow is having such a fantastic network of friends who were there for me um, in the good times and the bad times. I always know there's somebody there to talk to when I need to and to have a laugh with. 
True friendships provide us with memories that we cherish for a lifetime. They help us to grow and become better people. They help us to make a better society. For over 200 years, The Oddfellows has helped its members forge friendships and offered help in times of need. So why not give them a call today on 0800 028 1810 for a free information pack or visit oddfellows.co.uk to find your nearest branch. Everyone's welcome. Now, let me top up my tea, grab some of my friends, and we'll have that wee chat about the story you've just heard. That was A Deal in Hearts, which was published anonymously in The People's Friend in August 1913. And joining me to talk about that story is our able narrator, Marion from the Features team. Hello, Marion. Hello. Hello. We're also joined by David from the DC Thompson Archives. Hello, David. Hi there. And People's Friend fiction editor, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. Hi, everyone. So, A Deal in Hearts. Um, I didn't mean to say published anonymously because that makes it sound a little bit like it was something illicit that they didn't want to take credit for. But David, that that happened frequently um, in the past, that stories were published without an author attributed to them, didn't it? Yeah, it's pretty common. A lot of the short story writing in The People's Friend in this period, and even earlier, um, you know, usually one per episode, or one per issue, sorry. I suspect that it's in-house authors. So there was a, there were a talented team on The People's Friend staff at the period, of people who were writing in their own right. Sometimes they'd be writing anonymously, sometimes under pseudonyms, sometimes under their own names. So the editor at this time was David Pay Jr., who was the fourth editor of The Friend, and he was quite prolific. I don't necessarily think this is one of his, but looking into the background of this story, what I found is there seems to be a whole series of these summer romance kind of stories. Mm. Um, that were published in August of that year. One was in uh, a tea, what was it called? Um, a tea room girl, a holiday romance in uh, holiday romance in Port Rush. Sorry, I'll say that again because I can't speak today. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're only recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, the tea room girl, a holiday romance in Port Rush, which is anonymous. Um, one called the Professor's Wooing, which is a romance on Aaron. Um, by somebody called Molly Jameson, and then this one, which is also anonymous. So it seems to be there was a, a theme going on for before the days when we had summer specials, I guess. Apparently so. Um, a whole subgenre of friend stories, people go on holiday, find romance. Although I, I think that subgenre exists still to this day. I don't think that's a thing that was dispensed with in, in the 1900s. Um, we were speaking before we started recording about how this story bears a similarity to a story that we covered in season one of the podcast called um, Stella and the Spy, which was subtitled A Holiday Romance. And it was similar to this well-off family goes on holiday. Um, although there was a, a little bit of intrigue to that because that story was about um, the the woman encountered someone in a hotel that she suspected of being a German spy during World War One. Lucy, actually, if while we're on the topic of uh, holiday romance stories, I, I'm guessing that that is still something that we get quite a lot of from our authors and, and publish quite a lot of in The Friend today. Yeah, I think so. I think across the ages as well. And I think um, perhaps younger themed stories might find a good fit with our People's Friend special. 
Um, as you know, we do feature a variety of stories in the special, which are perhaps not as traditional as in the the People's Friend Weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, although again, there are some, but yeah, I would definitely say it's it's still a genre. I think romance of all kinds is still very much to the fore um, when it comes to People's Friend authors. So the specials where we publish all of our gritty stories? I would say challenging, perhaps. Um, I think... When it comes to the people's friend, I think in terms of traditional stories, that the most traditional stories tend to appear in our annual. I think that's their their natural home, followed by the weekly. Um, but again, we do have a mix there. Um, obviously, we we aim to please all our readers, so there's a mix of traditional and and slightly more modern. And then in the um, in the special, there's obviously a wider variety of story story lengths and word counts, and I think people find that perhaps more tricky or challenging um, stories, they may find a home there in terms of there might be longer stories too. Sure. Um, so yeah, there's a hopefully we aim for a mix. And while we're speaking about uh, sub-genres of stories, it's just occurred to me that this is this counts as another sub-genre, which is uh, man inherits business <laughs> or uh, man is in line for big promotion uh, because the, the main character... Harry Graham is waiting to be made a partner in his uncle's stockbroker business. And this is kind of hanging over his head as the action of the story continues, where he finds that he wants to steal his uncle's designated bride. (laughs) I thought he's quite crafty at the end of that. I thought the way that he kind of turned that around, and kind of slipped in, oh, by the way, yeah, you can have it and give me the partnership. (laughs) (laughs) While I've got you here. It wasn't quite kind of like Dickens' Bob Cratchit. It was kind of like, it was a bit more kind of like, yeah, I've got you over a barrel here, mate. (laughs) And it'll suit everyone. (laughs) Except for the women who don't seem to have any agency in all of this. No say at all. I love the commodity trading aspect of that one. Yeah, the line is, uh, it's right near the beginning. His uncle talks about finding the woman, or rather he talks about getting married. He doesn't talk about any of the, any build-up whatsoever to this transaction. Um, And he, he mentions that the woman is young, is it that I fixed upon a lady and secured her? Yes, it's just like so, like you know, oh, trading in futures here. <laughs> yes, and in fact, it's I, I've fixed upon the lady and secured her relative's approval of the match. Yeah, not mentioned it to her. No, <laughs> what you want to keep things as a surprise sometimes, and marriage is surely one of them, where you just <laughs> just wake someone up one day and be like, "It's you." <laughs> 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 Don't tell the bride. Hey, Channel 4 are making a whole series out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get in there and get royalties if this was if we're talking about subgenres? I think you find we were doing that back in 1913. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting just before we came on there um we were just discussing Ian there, you know, that this actually appeared in print over 100 years ago. It's mm-hmm. it's it's so amazing to think about and to think how much has changed for women in that time hopefully including having some say over your future <laughs> <laughs> hopefully yes i i i'm guessing that this a, a story that followed this kind of plot line would not necessarily make it into the magazine today or it would undergo substantial changes in the relationship area for certain i think it's fair to say substantial <laughs> <laughs> um, and i think also it would it would most probably be from the viewpoint of one of the ladies. That's another change. I think it was, 
it was just absolutely fascinating to read this. It's like a window on another world altogether, isn't it? And I think that must be fascinating for you, David, with all your work in the archive. Um, it is like another world and you can see sort of all the social history there in the pages. Yeah, you can sit there picking it out quite easily and those changes, especially about, you know, the power of women, as you're saying, and their kind of role and it's like their um, agency and their, their choice to kind of decide their own life, um, which you do see coming through in the magazines. But it, I mean, it comes quite late. I mean, even if you look at something like you were talking about before, the um, Stella and the Spy in that story, she didn't have much agency. <laughs> she was kind of basically her dad's nursemaid, for want of a better phrase, in that story. Yeah. Um, so she didn't have much choice, although it, got, it all worked out well in the end, as a people's friend story quite often does. Molly has quite a bit of agency for the time, though, in this story. Because I quite like the way that she turns things around with Mr. Parker. She She almost reminded me of... She's like a, a precursor for the flapper girls that were to come along in the 1920s with a bit more character about them and a bit more, I know what I want and I know how I'm going to get it. Now, she has to work within the constraints that she's got, which is she can't be up front and say, I'm just not going to marry this guy and that's that. So she does it in a kind of a roundabout way. But she is the author of her own future at that point. Yeah, I kind of like the fact that she did that. And she's like, right, okay, I'm going to play with this. Um, though she was yeah. spurred on to do that by Harry. Um, but I really like the way it's so like three days of kind of like, well, we're going, we're going golfing. <laughs> she just really went with it. <laughs> and see this sort of Bertie Wooster sort of character in the background go, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, I wondered if this story was um, quite typical of the time, David, in that when the friend began initially... I, it was aimed more towards a family, sort of all-round family reading. And then as it sort of morphed into more of a, a magazine for aimed at women, I wondered if this was sort of typical of that time. Yeah, um, we're coming up to a really critical point in the Friends history because World War One is on the on the horizon. You know, It's literally, what, nine months away this story is published. No, a year away. This is published in August. World War One's declared in August 1914, if my history is correct. Um so, you know, we're about to come up to a big change. And that was really a sea change for the People's Friends. And it became much more focused at women and um, much more female content. Because obviously at that point, the men are away at the front um, or are being called up. Mm. So we are coming up to this big change. So this is kind of like the last of the halcyon days, really. But I think, it, you know, looking at the stories that the podcast has covered beforehand, this feels very typical to me. It's like, oh, here's a situation. We can see what's coming by the end of the you know the first section of the story where they're going like oh I never saw never bothered to ask him where I'm going on holiday it's like uh, I can see where this is going <laughs> <laughs> not saying it's formulaic but um, this is very typical for the time but I think we're about to see a change as it goes more female and not that men weren't reading the friend because the friend would go out to the front during both world wars and the men would devour it because they were just hungry for anything they could read for entertainment mm. there's a bit of product placement in here which I really liked you know, she's on the she's on the ferry going across to Rothsey, and um, she's like she's sat there reading her people's friends. Oh yeah, I love that. And that, well, the dog runs off to cause merry hell. You know? <laughs> well, she was so absorbed in it. How could she possibly be expected to look after the fat poodle? She's that absorbed in it. She probably knows how the story's going to play out. That's <laughs> <laughs> what made me think it might have been a staff writer just having a little play, having a little joke. I suspect that's true because there was a, there was so many good writers on staff that they were probably 
doing these i don't I'm, i don't think it's barbara cartland where they're kind of like brush past a keyboard and all of a sudden they've written a novel but it was just <laughs> um, i think but i think they were very able and this does feel well constructed it does um and it doesn't feel overly expositiony or um you know the, the, the characters having to spell out the story compared to some stories that we've looked at in the past where it's gone like oh my god we're being spoon-fed here <laughs> some of the stories that we've had a look at suffer from this thing where they kind of front load a load of stuff uh, a load of the the action of the story and then they have very little time to resolve everything so you'll have a 1200 word story and a thousand words of it is concerned with the setup and the action and then there's 200 words where it just says and then everything was fine <laughs> well this one's a little bit guilty of that this one's a little bit guilty of that, isn't it? When he gets pulled out of the water and everything, and it's like, I'll meet you for a drink. And it's kind of, it's done as a deal in the bar <laughs> and wrapped up really quickly. Let's solve everything like civilized men in the pub with no women around. Wow. I'm, that's I'm, not how I'd want to arrange a marriage. Final sentence as well. You know, you get the scene in the bar when the uncle's saying, I only hope they'll both behave like sensible women and accept the change of partners. Final sentence. And before the holiday was over, they had. <laughs> We don't even see them. I really hope the maiden aunt caused him merry hell. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> you don't get much of a an insight into the aunt, really, beyond obviously she sees her daughter, uh, her niece as a commodity to be married off as well for money. She literally says that because I'm looking at the line here and um, Molly is saying, though we're staying at the hydro, we're not really well off. The girl confessed. Indeed, we're so far from it that aunt is constantly impressing upon me that I must make a wealthy match marry uh, somebody for his money there's no beating about the bush there it's not like oh maybe a rich man will come along it's like find one immediately and rope him <laughs> <laughs> to be fair she does end up with that but she ends up with a love match as well obviously mm -hmm. although obviously you know it's a, it's a bit of a love at first sight thing, which I, I have problems with generally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you cynic. That probably says more about me than it does about the story. <laughs> I did think it was cleverly written. I think there's a lot of humour in there. Um, and although we all suspect after not a terribly long time what is going to happen, it doesn't take away, it doesn't detract, I don't think, from the enjoyment. And again, I suppose we all have to remember that people were reading it, you know, over 100 years ago when society was so different. Um, they're perhaps dealing with quite a a situation which might have been familiar to many readers in a way, you know, that has humour and has empathy. And um, as I've said, I think you can tell fairly early on what's going to happen here, but it doesn't make you want to stop reading. No, it does sort of subvert that that trope of the marriage being arranged. And the the girl does take control of that, in, as David was saying, I think, in, in as much as she is able she becomes the one in charge and she runs the uncle ragged in an attempt to put him off because she has other plans in her head, um, which is probably not the way that those stories may have gone had they been published a little bit earlier in the magazine, maybe. that The satisfactory outcome would have been and she marries the old rich fella and some people live happily ever after. I'm not sure that the friend would have done that, actually. I don't think... I think this is this is how... Even if it had been written 20, 30 years earlier, I suspect this is still the outcome that would have happened. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Mm, yeah. I think if she'd, if she'd stuck with 
um, uh, Mr. Parker and married him, then it's it's not a happy match, and that doesn't strike me as the kind of the self-improving, happy, or not happy ever after that is the friend, because it's not always happy ever after. It you know, life still brings challenges, but I think she'd have saddled herself with something where it's obvious she wouldn't have been happy, mm. and I don't think the friend's readership would have liked that. I think this is a, a pretty typical friend trajectory, but it's as, as Lucy was saying, it's done with a lot of humour. Yeah. Which kind of makes you almost forgive. It's, it's really an afterthought about the fact that, oh, hold on, the women don't get much choice. But, uh, as you know, in a historical context, it probably wasn't massively unusual. But the people reading The Friends at this time are probably going to be predominantly working class people. So there's something a little bit... Uh, aspirational is not the right word for it, but it is that it's the romance, both in the romance thought of... Um, you know, romantic love, and then also that kind of romance of you know the getaway, you know, the happy ever after, the the um, the kind of the, the fantasy almost of this is. I wish this was me going on holiday and being rescued and falling in love, and suddenly find myself, you know, all my money problems gone. <laughs> Damn it! Book me a ticket to Rossi. <laughs> Just properly escapist, isn't it? Because it, it could be set anywhere. I know it talks about Glasgow and you know the Harry's going down Renfrew Street and stuff, but. It didn't strike me as being particularly Scottish. It could have been any seaside town. You could you could swap it out for Leeds and Scarborough. Uh huh. You know that that kind of the, the city breakaway, which is what Rothsey was at this period, and was even up into the seventies and eighties. You know, somewhere you went from Glasgow on a holiday, in the same way as these kind of seaside towns like Blackpool for Manchester, etc. Yeah. You know, you could have had it anyway. Rothsey's got a bit more romance about it, and it is that kind of the Scottishness of the friend coming through. But as you say, you know, there's there's no Scots language in there particularly, or Scottish um, even terminology. I think in terms of um, friend people's friend fiction, it definitely has that sort of feel good vibe to it, which I think even now is such a strong element of of friend yeah. fiction and and something that we often talk to, especially new authors about. You know that, as you say, David, life does bring challenges, and we do not shy away from those. We're not averse to featuring stories with those but I think it's the way that it's handled it's the friend filter we often call it and it's you know to have an upbeat ending or feel good ending and so that people smile as they as they finish the story um I think that hasn't changed along with so many things about the friend you know the whole ethos remains the same friendship and family and and um decency and it's still the same um and likewise with the fiction the the core elements of it remain the same even after all this time yeah because I'm skimming over the story, I've just got to the bit where the uncle, Mr. Parker, describes Molly when he's trying to get out of marrying her. He describes her as a cyclone. I'm I'm for a quiet, peaceful life, not a marriage with a cyclone, <laughs> which I think is excellent. I thought it was interesting also how he, he was portrayed as quite an old man, although in actual terms of how old he would actually be, I think it was quite ageing. I feel certain that I'm older now than he, than Benjamin Parker was in the story. <laughs> but I think in those days, older people tended to be portrayed as older, whereas now, you know, 50s, the new 21, I want to say. <laughs> we would never dispute you, Lucy. <laughs> of course. I, I did like the descriptions of him that went through and he's like he's always been referred to as kind of like um you know overweight and balding <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being bald or overweight <laughs> <laughs> stout yeah stout and getting bald you know it's just like you know he's got that middle-aged comfort hasn't he haven't we all throughout the story actually the descriptions of people's physicality are quite 
it's it's one of my favorite bits in it. I mean, he's described by other people as being stout and rubicund, etc. Um, but also, even the way that the dog is described, it's like you can't use the word dog more than once. <laughs> so what is it? It's referred to as a short-limbed quadruped at one point, which I really <laughs> liked. That, that's excellent. Yeah. Um, and then um, a fat poodle. <laughs> Yeah, resisting his ex- temptation to vent his exasperation upon the poodle's overfed carcass. <laughs> <laughs> this dog has been spoiled rotten. Yes. He led Harry quite a dance on that boat. I'm surprised he could run. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I thought that was actually quite a strength of the story was those kind of little descriptive elements. Yeah, I love that. I, so I was just thinking that it, the way it's described, although he doesn't go into great detail, I'm sure the readers were chasing around the boat with Harry after Peter the Poodle. <laughs> No, it was a lovely bit of descriptive writing. The other bit of descriptive writing that I really like is the bit where the uncle's complaining about all the stuff that Molly has made him do. Yes, I, I have the. I just have it like really vividly in my head, especially the the golfing bit because he <laughs> says, um, two days ago she trailed me to the top of possibly Barone Hill. We're unsure. Um, you'll have to let us know if that's the correct pronunciation. Um, two days ago, she trailed me to the top of Barone Hill, and I haven't got over it yet. Yesterday, she insisted on my golfing with her. I broke two borrowed clubs, spoiled the yards of turf, and my arms feel like they've been disjointed. <laughs> you can always imagine it as a movie scene, you know, like these kind of like constant shortcuts of like golfing, and then all the rest of it, and him just getting more tired and exasperated, <laughs> and and just like hacking up wads of turf with his clubs. <laughs> he doesn't say that he broke them while golfing. He may have broken them in frustration. <laughs> Don't get the impression he's a natural golfer, which is odd for a stockbroker. <laughs> well, the fact he's got to this age, he's not married. He's portly, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Cuddly. What's wrong with him? Why is he still on the shelf at that age? Because with that career, he's quite an eligible man. I think there's another story in there that we that we should try and find. Oh, there's a backstory. <laughs> Portly, balding men left on the shelf. <laughs> no one writes stories about them. <laughs> Stop looking at me. <laughs> I think as a story, it's it's great fun. I think it's very light and it's great holiday reading. Absolutely. We talked about the end, I guess, coming in a little quickly. The, the two gentlemen meet in the bar and decide what's going to happen. And then it happens. Um... And, of course, it's important that the uncle's honour is saved. That's what he says. My honour saved and my mind relieved. Come along to the hydro, my boy, and begin your courtship at once. Well, this was the day of broken promise suits, wasn't it? So it could have been expensive. Is that the the people could sue one another for... Broken engagements, yeah. I think that can still happen even now. Occasionally you do hear about that in the news, especially if it's a high-profile person or if the engagement ring costs a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me more. Just I'm asking for a friend. (laughs) I certainly couldn't tell you timescales, but there was a phase of if you had promised to marry somebody, and it was usually a man promising to marry a woman, and you welshed on it, she could sue you for breach of promise. And there were fairly high-profile court cases at the time. It was a tough time for a con man, apparently. Yeah, be careful what you promise, innit? 
at this period in the the people's friend they did have like a, a lawyer on um not on staff but on a retainer and they you know you could write in with questions about this kind of thing it's like you know if i was to uh welsh on my promise to this young lady <laughs> would i be out of pocket <laughs> now there's a thing that we should bring into the current magazine why don't we have a lawyer where we can ask these questions <laughs> i thought that was something absolutely fascinating when we came up to the archive um, a couple of years ago when we were researching for the 150th anniversary um, I had noticed that in some of the, the older issues that we had this legal advice available and I thought it was absolutely amazing and just showed what a part of society the friend was and what a help it was to people who didn't have access, didn't have the resources, didn't have the knowledge or the money to get their own legal counsel um, and this was all available to them through the pages of the People's Friend. It's quite a remarkable public service. And also at that point, women wouldn't have necessarily had the right, a married woman wouldn't have had the right to approach a lawyer without her husband's consent. And so therefore she was kind of cut off from legal um, legal assistance. And that's kind of, I think, was part of the role of the friend at that time and the, the friend's lawyer who would give that kind of advice um, because they could write in anonymously and get it. Because you were essentially the property of your husband at that point and had no rights. The goods and chattels, I think you came under, unfortunately. Yeah. Just raise your hand in the air and if you hit something, that's the glass ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) So regular listeners will know we have a new um, section in the podcast this season, which is the section where we will ask the guests to rate the stories, a completely arbitrary rating system that I have made up and I will I will absolutely die on a hill for it. <laughs> we are asking our guests to rate the stories out of 10 and then we're also asking um, you, the listeners, to contribute your own ratings. You can do that on Facebook uh, or Twitter. You can also do it by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'll take into account all of these ratings and at the end of the season, the story that scores the highest will be reprinted in the magazine. So there is the potential that a story could be printed again for the first time in a hundred years. Bringing old stories to light is a thing that we very much enjoy doing. That's kind of why we started this podcast. So a deal in hearts. I'm going to ask for some ratings. David, I think I'll start with you. What do you think? I'm going to be a bit brutal on this one. I'm going to give it a six because it was entertaining and it was well written and all the rest of it, but I just didn't really see the ultimate point of the story. (laughs) And it it felt a bit formulaic and a bit... um, I think what let it down for me is that within the first third of the story, you could see what was coming. And they made it entertaining, but I... Too much was given away a bit too early. Okay, so that's a six. Marion, um, what do you think? Do you know, I've got nothing to disagree with in anything David's just said. Concur with all of it. That is normally the way. (laughs) (laughs) I might have given it a slightly lower mark, but because I was quite entertained by Peter the Poodle and I like dogs so much... I'm going to give it six as well. And Lucy? I'm going to say a solid six also. And the reason being that, again, I don't disagree with anything that's just been said. I do feel it was quite humorous. It was very light. I think for what it was intended for originally, holiday reading, it fits the bill perfectly. I think the characters are quite engaging, despite everything that we've already discussed. So yeah, in terms of the story itself, I'm going to say six. 
These are not at all bad scores, um, given the the way that the scores for other stories in the in the season have gone so far. So it's entirely possible that the story you'll be reading in the People's Friend next summer is A Deal in Hearts. Um, stay tuned for that one. And that's it for this episode. So it just remains for me to say thank you to Marion for her narration and for joining us for the chat. Thank you to David and Lucy as well. And thank you for listening. And until this wee group of friends gets together again for another story, from the friend to you, cheerio. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Reading Between the Lines. Subscribe in your podcast app today so you don't miss our next story, and check our previous episodes for more from the Friend Archives. We would be delighted if you were to recommend this podcast to your friends. If you don't already get The People's Friend, because you listen to Reading Between the Lines, you can now get your first 13 issues for just £6, and that special offer is available until May 31st, 2022. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And for more from The People's Friend, visit thepeoplesfriend.co.uk or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hasty back. There's a dainty little journal that is read both far and near. It has had a host of rivals, still it stands without a peer. It is bright and entertaining from the first page to the end, and is known to its admirers as the dear old people's friend. A charming little journal is the friend. Of good things it is such a happy blend. That to read it at your leisure is a pleasure without measure. The friend to friends in trouble recommend. They won't be happy till they get the friend.